hello, and welcome back to Enjoy the Journey podcast. I am your host, Lauren Fairbanks, and I am back today with a guest by the name of Kylie, Kylie Shields. And Kylie is a social worker, has a background in, oh, just about everything in the art. She's done (laughs) writing and music and dance and all sorts of things, but we're here with her today to talk about singleness and being single and learning to be happy in your singleness and Kylie has actually written a book on this Kylie welcome to the podcast how are you doing thank you good thanks for having me okay remind me again the name of your book so that way we can tell everybody to go read it yeah it's called make it happen and uh yeah I think the subtitle is how to be happy, how to be single and happy or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't really pick the tagline, but yeah, make it happen. Make it. Which is not like make getting married happen. It's like make your goals and dreams come true in the process of like dating and trying to find somebody so that your life is fulfilled, even if you don't get the things that you want. Right. Okay. So obviously I feel like all too often there are young girls and I'm talking about like like gals who are about the age of like graduating high school or or starting in college and whatnot and all too often the reality hits of of kind of figuring out their future dreams on their own because when you read fairy tales or whatever it's like oh I'm gonna graduate high school go to a year of college and then I'm gonna find Prince Charming and get married and he'll take care of me and I'll be a mom and have kids or or whatever like their fantasy is I feel like it's really common for young girls to have that mindset of I'm going to have a happily ever after and that's going to be like that's going to be my my future and whatever and so for pursuing goals and dreams and setting goals and dreams um what is your strategy or having help helping people like finding what they love and then pursuing that yeah good question I think that's like two parts for me so one part of that is sometimes people put a lot of pressure on themselves to like know what they want to be and and we, we don't know what we don't know so like Right now, I'm a therapist at a young adult program, and all the time, my clients are just like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And we do these career assessments with them and stuff. But for the most part, I think where most people get stuck is in in the not trying, like not putting yourself out there, right? I ended up switching my major completely in, in college because I took an intro to English class, even though I was a music dance theater major, and I just fell in love with that and ended up switching my major. But had I not taken the intro to English class, I don't know that I would have known that. So it's a little bit like one of my advice to people, if they're trying to figure out what they want, their hopes and dreams or whatever is to sort of like do it. So if it's, if you think you want to date a Prince Charming, date him, you know, most of the time they fall short. (laughs) Like most of the time you're like, Oh, that's not, you're the guy that I thought was Prince Charming. And you date them. You're like, Oh, you're pretty real. If you, if you think you want to do a career in something or whatever, the other side of that, that's not really about your hopes and dreams is I'm a big fan of vision boards, creating a vision board of goals or things. And that can be in any way, like mine are really specific. They're smart goals. Um, But 
I have had in the past just visual vision boards where these are like pictures and things that I like. In my book, I talk about the fundamental principle of my book is that when I served an LDS mission and on the last day of my LDS mission, I set 101 goals. Somebody had told me about this in their previous mission. So I sat down and I just wrote, I mean, it was everything from, I want to read my kids, my children um, books at night before they go to bed to I want to own a piano to, <clears throat> you know, everything I could think of. It's, it's quite a process to sit down and write 101 goals. And some of them were really big and some of them were attainable by myself. And some of those were going to take other people. Like I want to get married. Um, but that process of putting down 101 goals in and of itself is like very enlightening. It helps you to know where your brain is and where your like heart is and, and like, and where you are. So from the, from those 101 goals, I took five of them and I, and those are what I call my make it happen goals. They were goals that didn't rely on anybody else. So they weren't dating goals or marriage goals. They were like, like I wanted to make an album for myself and I wanted to write all the songs and sing all the songs so that I knew that it would take money or connections, right? I wanted to own a piano. So I knew that was either you know, the process. I wanted to go and sit on the Piazza de Spagna, the Spanish steps in Italy. So, and those were three of the five that I had, but I knew that I could do that. I could save my money and do those, or I could make the connections or whatever. And, and, and setting those five, make it happen goals for me. I didn't give them a timeline. Like I'm going to do it within this year, but I did say like, I am going to work towards these goals. And when you set goals intentionally and you work towards them, you live into opportunities. Oh, I love that. I love the way you worded that. That is so good. Do you, so you, you talk about all of that in your book and do you lay it out and you're, totally. you're doing it? That's awesome. yeah. Yeah. I lay it out and I also call that it's a, it's, it's, you know, just full disclosure to listeners, it is from an LDS lens. And so I talk about some principles in there. Um, I call I call some of those goals, what I call on the way goals. Um, in the scriptures, there's a lot of miracles that happen with Jesus, but they're on the way to something else. So if you're like with the idea of like, if you want to, if marriage is one of your big goals, for example, if you're not careful, you're going to miss all these miracles and all these goals on the way to that if that's like your only end road. So being able to set goals that happen and, and create opportunities on the way. Right. Okay. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. Did you, <clears throat> did you set a timeline or really have a timeline in your mind of I'm going to be married by this time? You know, that's interesting. I think I did have an idea and then it moved and then it moved. <laughs> I never thought I would get married young. I, I didn't think that was going to be good for me. Um, I'm pretty independent. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly um, just, I wanted to explore life and do some things and I wanted to, you know, travel and, and not that I put off if I had met my husband, I'm sure I would have married him, but I, I pretty much knew that I was going to serve a mission from the age of 10. So I, I pretty much knew that I wasn't going to get married before I, and, and when I served back when the dinosaurs were on the earth, it was, you had to be 21. So I, you know, I knew I probably wouldn't get married till I was about 23. When I got home from my mission, I wasn't in a rush. I wouldn't say that I ever became worried or even thought about it until I was about 28. Really? Okay. A lot, a lot further along than, than some people, they get really stressed. I was like pretty much like 
dig in life. I was just like, I found out that I have the ability to set goals and then make them happen and, and give permission to other people to make them happen. And I found a career. I decided at like around age, I took a while to like figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. I, wa- I wandered in the wilderness for a long time. So I went to grad school at 28. So it wasn't until I went to grad school that I was like, oh, I probably need to get through grad school. So because if I get married and have kids and I started to look around at other people and start to feel like, oh, man, a lot of people are married. So it was probably it was late. It was like 28. And then from that point, I think, um, you know, those 10 years between 28 and 38, I think I wasn't so, so stressed. I was just like, oh, it'll happen. It'll happen. You know, and then when I hit about. I would say 36, 37, 38, I started to be really stressed. <laughs> like everybody, even if they're not Mormon is married at this point and like you're getting left behind and yeah. Yeah, no, that I, I can totally see that where you feel like you're left out or, or you missed your, your train or your bus or yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard that analogy, but it's like you missed to where you were supposed to go and you don't have a way to get there now because... And I didn't get on it. Like what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you, that you're saying like 36, 37, 38, were the years that you're starting to get really stressed or worried about it. Um, would you say that it was mind consuming or caused you anxiety or any other form of like, did it, did it consume you in any way or, just because I know so many people yeah, are yeah. consumed in I'm single and I don't want to be single. And yeah, you know, it's such a good question, Lauren. I, I would like to say, and I think I have lived this, that I don't ever want to be a victim of my circumstances. So part of that is my, I'm a big fan of positive psychology and I'm obviously I'm a therapist. So like I have this pretty healthy inner voice inside of me that says, I always have a choice. You know, I have a choice. Um, if I want to go out and have sex with somebody, I can just go do that. Nobody's stopping me from doing that. Like if I want to not marry somebody, I would like to marry somebody in my faith, but if I could go probably marry somebody, if, I wanted to. It's not like I don't, I'm not incapable, but the kind of person that I want to marry is kind of hard for me to find. And so I, I guess I'm all, I've always been really realistic with myself about my choices and my accountability. And then it's no one else's, it's no one else's job to make me happy. And so while I don't think I ever let it consume me, the other thing that, that was going along, the other reason why I ended up writing the book actually, is I was watching these, I was 20, six when I was in Boston and I was watching these 28, 29, 30, 31, 32 year olds who were just kind of drab. They didn't dress very well. They had they nothing wrong with secretary jobs or anything, but they were in jobs that weren't careers and they were kind of spinning their wheels waiting to get married. And I remember looking at them being like, I never want to be like that. I never want to be the person who's just waiting around in my life trying to figure out the next step. I want to be like building the kingdom. I want to be contributing. I want to feel like God is like saying to me, like, there's work to be done, Kylie, like do the work. You know, it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to not, you're not going to not get married if you're building the kingdom, right? Like I'm not going to hold that blessing from you. And so, and I watched a lot of those, not just women, but men, I watched a lot of people as they aged out of like single, you know, as they got older, as they got like 31 and I watched them be like, become really big victims and very negative about the church 
even if they stayed in the church, they were very, and this is, and this is also like my friends that were not members either. It was a little bit older age for them, but when the system that you've grown up in, whether it's the education system or the church system, or whatever, when it starts to fall away and you sort of have to figure out your own things in your life, people often have a tendency to blame that system, right? So I saw so many people blaming the system, blaming other people. And, and I remember just being like, Ooh, I don't want to be that either. I don't want to be the person who becomes a victim. So for me to kind of come back around and answer that question, I, there were moments that were agonizing. So there were moments when I would just be like, and part of that is that biological clock. As I became 36, 37, I'm now 41. I start to be like that window's like super speed closing. Right. And so for me, that became like, oh, I'm not, I'm, there's a potential that I won't ever be able to be a mother. So it didn't mean that I couldn't have relationships. I always knew that that was an option, but there were some things for women that just start to close. And no matter your timeline, no matter how slow you're doing things or how fast you're doing things. So that became a focal point for the first time in my life. I was like, oh man, if I don't get married or if I don't, whatever, I'm going to lose this opportunity. And, and I recognize that that's just that's grief, right? Like, and there's nothing anybody can do about that. So when I would really get engulfed with that, I would, I would do the thing. I would cry. I would sit in it. I would let myself be sad. I would, there's various things that I do and I grieve, but I would like let myself be engulfed and I would grieve. And then I, because I had really felt it and sat in it and like grieved it, I could like come out of it and just get back to work in my life. So I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say there were overwhelming moments or overwhelming times, but I feel really blessed for the most part that I haven't like drowned in it. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. No. And that's a huge thing that, um, I like (laughs) one of the biggest episodes on here is, is it's okay to not be okay to it's okay to have a moment and it's okay to break down. It's okay to cry. And, I love that you come at life with a attitude of positivity. That's what I live off of. That's what gets me, you know, through each and every day is that positivity that I strive for and I strive after. However, I recognize and I try to let other people know is you can be the most positive person in the world, but that does not mean every day is going to be like great and happy and glorious and that you still need to have your days and especially to allow yourself, like don't beat yourself up when you have a bad day, allow yourself to have that bad day and feel those crummy feelings and feel them deeply. And, and as you worded it, like then pick yourself back up and move on because you were able to go through that process. Um, but I, yeah, I love the way that you worded that. I was actually going to ask you when you were saying that. I was like, if she doesn't say that she has hard times, I'm going to ask her. <laughs> but um, uh, what was I going to ask you next is um, like in dating relationships and other things, do you ever have, have moments where you're just, you just want to like speed up? whatever, like, whatever the relationship is, like, that is something that, oh my gosh, okay, like, maybe, maybe I was the only 13-year-old girl that hung out with other 13-year-old girls and did this, but, like, being 13 and waiting to, like, hit 16 and start dating, it was, like, I just want to have a boyfriend already, you know, (laughs) and, you know, (laughs) it's an interesting question. I, I feel grateful that, 
Um, and then I, I teach this as a therapist all the time, but I, I feel very grateful that I've been one of those people I feel like that's been able to stay in my own lane. Just like be in your own lane, Kylie. Don't compare yourself to other people or their timelines. So I was a tomboy in high school, so I wasn't really into like dating. Um, and and I was really into, I've always been into really into friends. I had lots of guy friends and girlfriends. And um, I actually think kind of this is a side to that question, but I'm going to come back. I actually think that has been my biggest saving grace. I I worked as a wilderness therapist in a program called Anasazi for about four years. And they call this, this togetherness group or this idea, what it's called your belonging place, which I just gravitate towards. I think one of the things that has made me help me to be as healthy as I am as and single as, as I've been is to, is that I, I feel so strongly about having a belonging place, right? Family and friends and people that have got you regardless of what you have or don't have, right? People that love me, whether I'm married or not, people that love me, whether I have kids or not, or whatever is your thing that you want that you're not getting, whether I'm healthy or not, right? So I I feel grateful that my whole life I've always really had, um, I've, all, I've never really been alone, even if I've been lonely, because I have a great belonging place. And because of that, I never really felt like, oh, I need to get married. I need to like get to date. I always felt like I, and I dated quite a bit, like early years of uh, first round of college. So my undergraduate and, um, but I, I've never been like this big dater. I was never one of those people that like guys asked out all the time. I was kind of, um, you know, just your average dater. And then like most people, as I got older and just in the dating world, it's been harder and harder to like, to, to date people, but I feel grateful. And even now, like I, about a year ago, I dated a guy fairly seriously for not for very long, but I hadn't dated anybody for a long time. And then he came into my life and he's divorced and had four kids. And it, it, I remember thinking when we first started dating, if this is going really well, are you going to feel compelled to speed it up? Right. Are you going to be like, Oh, let's get married or whatever. And I remember being really present in the relationship and being like, I'm, and being feeling very secure about like it's going to take the time that it's going to take. Right. It's going to take the time that it's going to take. And you putting any pressure either way is not going to is going to take away from being your authentic self or from him. We and we ended up um, he ended up breaking up with me and at about four months. And even though they were really intense, and I was so grateful that like I didn't give more or share more or like you know move it along faster because I felt like it was an appropriate, healthy amount, and I didn't feel like shame or embarrassment. So that, that's another thing is in in relationships. I know you didn't specifically ask, do I feel like I want to move it along? But a lot of people that I talk to have a lot of regret about relationships. They didn't stay in it long enough or they, or they made poor choices. And I, from a pretty young age, I tried really hard. I had this thought in my brain that, that every relationship kind of like jobs, when you leave them leave with grace, right? No matter how, no matter what happens, if it's your fault, if it's their fault, if you can leave with grace. And so I tried to begin with the end in mind. That's one of like Covey's like habits, right? Begin with the end in mind. Either this is going to be the person I'm going to marry and we'll be together, or this is going to be a person along my journey. Either way, like don't have regrets. So say the things you need to say, ask the questions you need to ask, you know, have the hard conversations, but don't live in regret, which makes me be able to turn back in my life. And even though I'm where I'm at, I don't feel a lot of like a lot of people ask me, like, do you feel like you 
there's people that got away or that you should have done something different. And, and, and you always can do things differently, but I feel also really grateful that I was really intentional in my relationships, whether they were good or bad. And so I guess my long answer to that is I've always felt like it's okay to just be kind of slow and steady, just be where you are. It doesn't mean I haven't been in like passionate relationships or, you know, things like that, that, that felt really exciting, but I, I feel up until the last few years, I felt pretty much like I'm on my timeline. And the last five years, I felt very much like, oh my gosh, my timeline is just off. It's, I'm on this conveyor belt that's like different than everybody else's timelines. You know, I have friends from high school who have kids that are now um, graduating from high school and going to college. So it's just like a big differentiation between my situation and their situation. So I find myself nowadays often saying to myself, don't, don't, compare your path to other paths, Kylie, <laughs> you, you haven't. So why are you doing it now? You know? Right. Right. Yeah. I actually love that. I was looking at all sorts of different things that we struggle with as uh, specifically as women. And I think mm. the biggest thing that young girls have is because of social media and everything can be on a filter is mm we can compare ourselves so easily to a model or another woman. And even now, if it's not a celebrity or an airbrushed model on a magazine, it can still be an airbrushed or filtered social media picture, but we might not realize that. And so you look at every other person and go, oh my gosh, their life looks perfect. Their life like looks so great. And look at me, I'm like laying in bed or, you know, wherever people are when they're, you know, in social media and you turn on your own camera to see you and your face is all like scrunched up, you know, cause you're looking down at your phone and you have the quadruple chin or at least I do sometimes occasionally. Um, but well, we always compare our weaknesses to someone's strengths, right? We don't compare our strengths to strengths or our weaknesses. I have this quote in my office that I want all my clients and everybody to see and whether they talk about it or not, I put it in this prominent space. It's like, I want this osmosis to come to them. And it says, comparison is the thief of joy. Wow. Very yeah. Because I believe that wholeheartedly, unless you're comparing to yourself to get better, or you're looking at other people's strengths and your strengths and how to get better, because there's some healthy comparison. Every other kind of comparison is actually stealing your joy. And, and if you can think of it that way, then I think it's easier for people to be like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want people stealing my joy, you know? Right, right. Okay. Just because we have talked about religion and like that side of it. Um, I'm a huge Jesus girl. Everybody knows I'm a Jesus girl, but um, <laughs> uh, I feel like sometimes when you pray for something, like obviously I, I'm, I'm sure you may have prayed for a, a spouse at one point or another, or you've prayed about relationships before entering into one and whatever it is. And I know for me, sometimes I've, I've had prayers that, especially for, for me, I, you know, wanting to serve an LDS mission like you did, um, I, even before the age of 10, like I was learning to walk and talk and I would like look at my dad's missionary tags and his, he served in Italy. So like his Italian, um, set of scriptures and whatnot. And I would be like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be like you. And I'd tell him that. And then the time came to put in my papers and I like very vividly just remember being like, Lauren, this is not going to be for you. 
this is and I was like isn't that a good thing like that is a righteous that is a good desire why would God deny me a good thing right and so I wonder sometimes because I feel like people all too often will be like well I prayed about the relationship before I entered it and I got no red flags or anything like that so why did it end have you ever had like something where you've prayed about it to be like heavenly father why would you deny me a righteous desire you know what's funny i have a i mean we all have interesting and unique relationships with our with god right with our heavenly father the older i get the more i compare that relationship to my earthly father who i happen not everybody does but i happen to have a fabulous relationship with my my personal dad who would want for nothing more than for me to get married and to have children, right? Like at the, at the deepest part of his soul, I know he yearns for that for me. And I don't know what it's like to be a parent, but I can guess I I've, I've done uh, work for 12 years now with families. Right. So if my father wants that, nothing more than me, I cannot imagine a God who's like, you don't get to have your righteous desires. I just choose to not think of God as like somebody who hands out to some people blessings and to some people not. And so to be real, I, I stopped praying about like getting married a long time ago. I, I changed my prayer to, you know, God, let me just be in the places where I can meet the people that are good for me, that are going to be a good belonging place. And, you know, let me, um, help me to be patient and kind and talk or not talk or present myself in a way that will invite people to, you know, see who I am, um, and be connected to me or things like that. I started to be a lot less like, give me this thing that I want, because I also started to be like, that's not really God's role. We have like our agency, right? We have, and I don't see God as a God who says you get this and you don't get this. So, a lot of people choose to be angry when they don't get things that their righteous desires at God. I, I sort of sit there and think like, why wouldn't my heavenly father want what's best for me? And sometimes I play this game and this is just the game of Kylie that what if it is the best thing for me to be single? And if it is, I better be, I better for the most part, do that with grace. Like if I'm complaining all the time about like, you didn't give me this and why am I single and I'm not going to have kids. And if I spend my lifetime complaining to a God, who's a loving father, who's basically saying to me, this isn't your rep. This isn't for you. This, and I don't know that he is, but I sometimes play that game. Right. I also sometimes play the game for myself of like, there are worse things than being single. There are plenty of people who are married and have kids and they are miserable, right? They've like hitched themselves up to people and they, their lives are atrocious. And I kind of don't want to be the person who prays and wants and wishes so badly. And then I get my desire and I hate it. Like I hate my life. And I was like, why did I spend the last 10 years wishing for, you know what I mean? Like I have this thought in my brain that like, it's you're good and we're good. God and I are pretty good where we are. And so if, if someone comes into my life, I would love that. But if they don't, I want to choose to love that too. I want to create a space where I can have that. But I also kind of want to be graceful where we're in whatever situation that I'm in. I hope that made sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And um, I think oh, some of the people, young adults, friends I've talked to, it's yes I got the answer initially that that wasn't a red flag it was an okay relationship to be in and when it ended I was confused but looking back I see where I grew from that relationship but I also see why it 
had to end, why it wasn't the perfect fit or a, a good fit. And like you said, there are a lot of people that are married and miserable. And <laughs> I, think, I think I would rather spend my life happy and single than, than married and miserable, I think. And, and quite often- certainly the answer to problems, right? And, and it brings its own set of things and children. It's, it's certainly, that's another thing I just know. I know because of being a therapist and all my experiences that like, you know, it's not going to solve issues and problems. The the things that you bring to are going to be your, your weaknesses, your strengths, they're going to be exasperated in a relationship, right? It amplifies that. So there's a part of me that's like, I just, I'm okay to be waiting for the right person. Um, doesn't mean that I love that and that I feel patient in that, or that like, sometimes I feel like I'm one of those children who's just like constantly being like, come on, like, right. Like it's my time, right? Like, like, it's not my time, right? Like, you know, people will often say to me like, oh, but Kylie, you're single because you're giving back and you wouldn't be able to do that. And I often get like angry. I like have this like feeling to people, but I don't want to be like the instrument in God's hands. Like, I don't want to be the person who like, da, 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 you know, like I want my own, I want my own desires. So, so there's definitely times for me when I wrestle with this place of being like, but God, I know that I want to be a mom and, and I would be really happy to just dig into my family. And, and I also know that I have gifts and things to contribute in a way that I couldn't if I was a mother. And that sometimes that makes me angry. The whole cycle makes me angry. It's like, okay, but I've been giving back. And so I kind of sit in this place and wrestle a lot with, with, um, with that part of my relationship about, you know, there's lots of um, so many exciting things I've been able to do and accomplish as a single person that I don't regret for one minute. Um, but you know, there's the, there's the other side of that relationship. I would give up a lot of the things that I have in order to have things that other people have. And they would do the same, right? A lot of my married friends are like, I don't want to make you feel bad, but like there, there's many times when they would say to me, like, I, I love my kids and I love my husband, but I would be really happy to have a year of being single, you know, <laughs> like to go and do the things that you're doing. So the grass isn't, the grass is definitely not greener, you know, on the other side, they say the grass is green where you, where you water it. Right. So it's like whatever relationship or whatever you're in. And so that helps ground me a little bit at times. It's just like, be where you are, be the best version of you where you are. Right. And you called when you're talking about your wilderness, wilderness therapy, therapy, the, um, it's your happy, the happy place or what, what did you call it? The belonging place. Your belonging place. Okay, so finding that group of people, because I feel like you you truly have lived. Like, you can look back <laughs> at your life and say, okay, I have lived. I may not have had a traditional path, but mm-hmm. I have lived a good, a great life. Like, I've mm-hmm. taken what I've had and I've made the best out of it. Um, and that's where a lot of the people that are really sad and dwelling in sadness and loneliness over being single is they're kind of just sitting there waiting for what they want to have happen like we talked about earlier Mm -hmm. um finding your belonging place and your your people uh talk me through how how you really grow your belonging place and find your people yeah I love that so there's a couple things that I've done in my life one thing is you, you 
I realized when I was a little bit older, I want to say like 20, 20, probably 28, when I went to grad school down in Arizona, I was in a singles ward. And, and for those of you who aren't familiar, just like young adults. So this was like, this is like 18 to 31 year olds. So I was like 28. In the, and so I was like the older of this group feeling really old. Um, and I was new and I didn't really know anybody in Arizona. And, and up to that point in my life, I had moved a lot. I'm from Oregon. And then I moved to Utah and I lived in San Diego. And so I sort of like thought that friendships were just the people that come into your propinquity. That's just a big word for like your, well, your, um, circle of influence. So like, if you're in this group or you, you know, whatever, if you're in a college class or whatever, those are your people. And, and it wasn't until I was in at Arizona that I realized that you, you can sort of tap in or tap out friends like that. You have the power to be like, Oh, I like that person. That's not really in my propinquity. They might be in this church group of mine, but they don't go to school with me and they have a different career and I don't really see them. Right. And I can be like, Oh, you, I like you, I choose you. And then I can intentionally put energy into that friendship. And if they intentionally like me back, then they put energy back into it. And if they don't, not everybody that I tap is going to receive me as well. Right. So I started to like really find um, empowerment in that. I would sort of pick friends that had similar goals and dreams. You become who you surround yourself with. That's absolutely true. So I wanted to be the the dumbest person or the the least motivated person or whatever in my circle of friends. I knew that. And I had a lot of energy and I had a lot of growth, but I was like, if I can find other people that will be generative and creative with me, like I'll be a better person for that. So I started to tap different people into my life and it just was life changing. Not only did I realize I had, I had the power to create my own group of people, but from that, you can imagine it's a generative spirit, right? They brought in new people. They brought in new ideas. They brought in things that I would have never been able to think of on my, on my own. And they brought in adventures and they brought in risk. So that's the other, that's the second piece you have to be, you kind of have to risk. And that, and some people think of that as monetary. Sometimes it is monetary, but sometimes it's emotional. You, you know, you have to sort of say like lots of people make dreams and then that's where they die. They die in root, right? You think, I wish I could go to Italy. I wish I could whatever. And then they don't make it happen. They don't save their pennies or their money or they don't, you know, whatever. And so that would, that would be the second thing that I would say to people in order to create a really awesome belonging place, you, you pick people and you try to seek out people that are also going to help you feel like you can risk that you can take chances that you can fail. Failure is a huge part of my belonging place. You know, it, it helps if you have some good friends that you can feel like I can go risk. I can start a business. I can do a, a podcast. I can open up this. I can write a book because you have people that even if you ethically fail, will still, will still love you. And if you do great, they'll validate that. So I would say those are two, two of the ways. The third, the third thing for me, um, that's really worked for me is that is you just have to get out of your comfort zone, right? Like I, people think I'm an extrovert, but I'm actually an introvert. I receive all the things that give me energy or like playing music by myself or reading a book or writing by myself or whatever that like I, my battery gets filled by really small groups, not big groups of people. But, but for years, I, I knew that the more people that I met or the more things I said yes to, the more opportunities that would present for me the more people I could potentially meet friends. And those friends would have people that I can date. Um, and so I, 
I just really am a big fan. You know, take your take care of yourself. Don't like overextend yourself, but say yes way more than you say no because the opportunities to meet somebody from somebody else or you'll never get those if you don't say yes. Right, right. I like that a lot. And I then- guess I have, I guess I have one more Lauren. I I've always been a big believer. <laughs> this goes back to kind of the Jesus thinking, but in the scripture there they have this they always they, there's a lot of what what wells right where people would meet to to drink water and, and there's like a lot of romances that happen at meeting at the well and I I always from a young age was like we're missing the well like why nobody has a well you know the modern day well is kind of like the bar you know like a place where people can from wherever can come and meet together and so pretty early on I realized if I either needed to go where people were creating a well they were creating opportunities or I needed to build it. So I did my fair share of being like, okay, I want to be in a choir, but there isn't a choir around. I should start it. And then starting the choir brought in people I would have never met from all kinds of places because all we had in common was music. Right. And then when I met those people in that common well, it was crazy the things I could learn and grow from them, but that would not have happened if we didn't have this common interest. So I really encourage people to either build those, build those spaces that people can come to or recognize them when they come around in your, in your life. And that might be the soccer team, or that might be the, whatever the thing that people are doing, that's kind of grouping people together organically. And it's a a shared interest of yours, taking advantage of that, even if it's out of your comfort zone, I think is a really good way to kind of create a belonging place. Right. I like that. Um, Would you say, because obviously you can have large groups of friends. I'm personally, I I think I'm like you where you're saying you get more fulfilled by small groups of people, like, like one-on-one, maybe two or three, you know, super close friends together. Like you put me and my sisters in the same room and we're just like, I call us the 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 blonde, the redhead and the brunette, like in the dumb blonde jokes. We're we're basically and so like you know we're just the three peats in a pod but um you put me in a huge room full of like large friend groups and I find it really hard to connect with people just because it's a larger setting and and you know I think it's ironic that sometimes some of the loneliest places would be in a crowd of people um you know, you can stand in a crowded room and feel completely alone. But would you say that you have relationships that have been key points or key relationships in your life? So that way, when you're not necessarily in like a romantic or dating relationship that you have those, like, the strongest friendships Mm -hmm. that you can just go and cry to them. And they're that consistency in your life. Yeah, and I and Ben Rector is one of my favorite artists. He has a song that he came out just recently and he said, you can't make old friends. Like you can't make new old friends. They're, they're just there or they're not, right? It's this like idea of like your old friends know you. I feel very grateful. My my business partner in my nonprofit right now, he, I've known him since he was 15 and I was 17. So like I have known him 
like longer than he lived before I knew him, you know, like, um, and he, a few years ago, he went through a divorce and I mean, there are just things that bond you, right? Like, and, and I can go to him and he actually can relate to me even more now as a single person being a single father than he could for the years that he was married. And so like, he's, he like, I kind of see friendships as like circles, right? You've got your inner circle and the next circle, and next circle. There's nothing wrong with any of those. So my best friend that I've had since I was five lives in Connecticut and has for the last 10 years. So even though I've known her since I was five, she's not in my like very inner circle because I don't interact with her on a regular basis. But when I'm with her, she becomes very central to that circle. Right. And I think that that's how friends are. Like the people that you spend the most amount of time with become your closest friend at the time, but I've moved a lot. And so I have different sets of those friends and I have some core fundamental friends that I've had for 10 plus 20, 20 plus years. And yeah, I mean, I don't know how people do it that don't because they end up being very grounded. They, they see your growth. They see who you've become. They've been through hard times and not, um, I also, so yes, I have those and they've been life-changing. And I also have found that I'm, I'm one of those people that has always had sort of a best friend or gravitates towards somebody. And sometimes that best friend may only be two years because then they get married and they leave or they move away. But at the time I really treasure that really tight knit, you know, who I am. I know who you are. You know, the person, the closest thing I could get to having a relationship with somebody who's really your person, right? Like where they really get you and see you. And, and that is like fundamental to my like mental health happiness, I think as a person is to know that I can rely on that person or that I can call them or I can tell them my, you know, deep vulnerable feelings. Then they're, they're not going to fix me. They're just going to sit and love me. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that, and if you're, if you're like early in that, like you, you have come back a couple of times and saying young, you know, young singles or young, whatever, even married one of, and you're like, well, how do I do that? Like, I don't know how to do that. Like looking back on, on my relationships, I realized that it's, there's one thing in common that like built most successful relationships. And that is showing up, showing up emotionally, showing up physically. If the person starts a business, you buy something. If they, if they write a book, you, you buy the book. If they are got a promotion, you take them out. It's like literally showing up for people um, that shows them that, that you're in it, that you're intentional, right? Like we build bridges and relationships brick by brick by brick. And if you're building, building and the other person isn't that, you know, so it's letting go of people that aren't going to be intentional back and it's collecting and keeping people that are, and then realizing that you have to foster that it's ne it never stops. You don't ever stop fostering that relationship that my best friend that I told you about that I've known since I was 15, like I call him, he calls me, we talk about things, we check in with each other. We say, Hey, how are you doing? We, you know, sometimes talk about dating or whatever, but we really like intentionally foster even after all these years and after starting a business and everything. I think that's key, you know, to be, and I think that's key if you're married. And I think that's key if you're single, divorced, widowed, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter your status so much. Having people in your life that you invest in and they invest back, I think is, was life-changing. Right, right. Okay. I want you to elaborate a little bit more on the letting go of people that don't give back to you. Cause I think that, oh. that is something <laughs> that, like you said, you like you, you gravitate towards one person. I, I am that way. So maybe this won't like talk to anybody else, but this is for me specifically. Is oh, it'll talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> We're often attracted to people who tell us basically, I can't show up for you. And we don't believe them. 
when we really should believe them. They may not say that in their words, but they say that in their actions. Like, I can't meet you where you're at. And we try so hard to be like, but I like you, but I want to keep you. But I, and in essence, what, what they are telling us in their actions and in their inability, they really can't. So early on, I'm, I'm an empath, which is just somebody who can really feel other people's emotions and feelings and can carry that. So at a very young age, I was like, what is this? Before I knew what being empathic was. I just carried all these emotions and often people that I'm just going to call them needy. Cause that's the word I use. Often I would grab People would gravitate toward me that were really needy because I was a good listener. Cause I would just listen to people and people need people. Who, people want to talk about themselves and it would burn me out. I would just be like, I can't, I can't, you're not giving back in any way to my relationship with you. You're just, this was even before I was a therapist and I would always feel bad. Cause I'm like, I don't want to tell them. I don't want to be their friend. That's mean. Or like, you know, I, I went through this big crisis. Um, and then a mentor of mine basically was like, you don't owe them anything. You don't own Oh, anybody, anything. Like if they're not showing up for you, it's okay for you to have healthy boundaries. And it's okay for you to say, here's the thing. Or my mentor also said, why don't you just learn to keep people at bay? Which is just this little, this idea of like, I don't cut you out of my life, but if I know you're going to want to sit with me for three hours, every time we get together and you're going to dump on me, maybe I only meet with you every six months or, you know, every three months or something. We stay friends kind of, but we don't like, and then I, at first in a relationship, I'll have to just kind of be intentional by saying like, oh, I can't meet or, you know, and then over time they sort of learn. I also just learned and, and maybe this was mean, but I also just started to be like, I have other friends and enough people that if you, if you don't really need me as a friend and you're not giving back to me, I would tell myself this story. I would say, you obviously have other people in your life that you're paying attention to and that you care about and have prioritized. So it's okay for me to cut you out. Now, I don't know if that story is true. Like I never know if that story is true, right? But I would make that assumption so it didn't make myself feel so bad to say like, I'm holding, I'm holding this boundary. Or when I really wanted somebody to either romantically or as a friend to show up more for me and they weren't. And I was always feeling bad about that. Like, I wish you would care about me more. I wish you, instead of feeling that, I would be like, oh, the fact that you're not caring about me more or showing up for me means that you're showing up somewhere else where someone else is meeting your needs. So I'm going to say you have enough. And because you have enough, I can let go of you. And for the most part, it's like they say, if you choose to let go of somebody and they actually really want to be in your life, they will change their behavior will change. They'll either ask you, oh, whoa, what am I doing? What did I need to change? Or they will know because of other relationships, right? Oh, I'm not showing up or whatever. Or they will just, easier than you think, disappear. Because your level of neediness or, 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 or not neediness, I would say your level of desire to be in that relationship is not matched and it actually becomes too hard for them. So you're, so you're, basically, you're basically gifting yourself this like, don't work so hard, don't work harder, you know, than the other person is working. And so, so there were many times in the last, like, I would say 15 years when I would have a friend and if it became such a burden or whatever, I would just, and I'm never one of those people that just ghosts people or walks out. I just have the hard conversation. So I have broken up with a few of my friends, even one of my guy friends I had for like six years, but he would just always only show up when there was a party or when there was a this. And I, I felt really transactional as a friend. And I finally just said to him, listen, I'm not my best self when I'm with you. I don't feel like you bring out the best part of me. I kind of sometimes think you use me. So 
I'm, I'm letting go. And he got really angry. He's like, you can't let go of me. I've been friends with you for you know six years. And I was like, I absolutely can. And, and we did. I mean, I don't have hard feelings for him, but I've been pretty intentional, which has caused this awesome, epic effect in my life. I'm not a perfect friend and neither are my other friends perfect, but they are so healthy. They show up, we ebb and flow, you know, sometimes they can be more present than they can't, but we, but we genuinely really care about each other. And we really want what's best for each other. And we're, we're giving the energy at kind of the same level. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And so in not only dating, but also like friendships. Oh, dang. Um, (laughs) There are so many where, where you just, you can get burnt out. But like you were saying on, on Mm. people are exhausting. People are exhausting. That's the easiest way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I just think that, that oftentimes, obviously you, you have a great group of people. You have a lot of friends, it sounds like, and, and you surround yourself with wonderful people. But I think that sometimes I we, mean, we work hard about it. Like, I guess that's what I want to say. Cause a lot of people just think, Oh, you happened into that. And I want to say like, no, I, I intentionally show up. I, I check in. I, I'm not a big gift giver, but I, when I notice something that they like, like I, without a birthday or whatever, you know, and, and they do the same, you know, they, they, and when you find friends like that, then you foster it, it more. It's, it's very purposeful, but it's also like, it feels good because it's good work, but you're, you're, you're all working. Right. Which is the opposite of what, what we were talking about. Right. If you're in an unequal, whatever relationship, romantic friendship, it feels heavy. It feels like a burden. It feels like you're, it feels like you become needy. Like I'm a needy person because I have to keep asking this person for like to show up for me or like, why aren't they showing up for me? And then you start to feel yucky about yourself and, you know, or if they really want you and you want some space for them, then you start to feel bad because you're like, Oh man, I don't have the energy for you. And that, does that make me a bad person? These are kind of signs of just unequally yoked or, or really like toxic, relationships and so I just anybody who feels like they're in those and that doesn't mean they're terrible people it just means they're not healthy relationships and so if you're in that I just want to give people permission to say it's okay to let go even if it's sad it's okay to kind of gift that other person to be released from your life and if you have to do it verbally or sometimes you can just create enough space that they get it right yeah yeah but but it's like barnacles on a ship you know like there's only two ways to get rid of barnacles on a ship. You can either bring the ship out of the water and like chip away at it, or you can take a, a, the boat can take a really big different detour and go into fresh water and the barnacles will come off. I kind of feel like that's like what friends are. You, you can chip away at it, or you can sort of say, I'm going to go into different waters. <laughs> I'm going to go into, and like people will, the people that aren't really healthy for you and toxic with you, if you hold really good boundaries, they have a tendency to weed themselves out. Right, right. I, I, um, my question is, is I feel like maybe it's me, maybe it's a common thing amongst people, but I have very few friends. Like I, my people are my people and yeah, I have my acquaintances, but people like when I consider people a friend, just cause I'm your friend on Facebook does not mean I'm your friend. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And so, yeah. and that so, circles back in, right? They're like far, far, far removed. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's level of friends. Like I have my number ones and then, you know, once you get past, you know, number three or level three, whatever you want to go going down, I guess, then I'm like, you're an acquaintance, <laughs> I guess is what I would call those people. Um, but I w- wanted to ask you for people who don't necessarily feel like they have a lot of friends. In fact, like loneliness is, is an epidemic right now. Like people just feel so lonely. And so they, even though a relationship, whether it's dating or friendships, they want to hold on to it because that's all they've got. And like, I don't know if you've been there, if you have advice on that, but I would like to hear. Yeah, I do have thoughts about it. Um, I don't really do that anymore. And I'm not saying I'm epic at it, but but that's also been a long time coming and lots of lessons learned. I, I watch though, as a lot of people even getting married, right? Like I'd rather be in a bad relationship because I don't want to be alone than wait for something healthier. And I'm not really here to judge people by that, but the outcomes are pretty clear about that. Most people that enter relationships or friendships like that end up worse off than they were, right? Like it's not anybody else's job to make you happy or feel loved or less lonely. And if you put on somebody else, that is, that is inherently the problem and will always be the problem. You're the common denominator in your life, right? So for me, like people often think, I'm lonely. I just need people to lean in. I need people to see me. I need people to be and put again, that responsibility on other people. If people are just unreliable, plus they can't read our minds. They don't know what's happening. You know, I I would often think when I was younger, I still think this sometimes it's going to take me like if I'm out ice skating and I fall through the ice and I'm drowning, that's the event that's going to take people to run into my life and be like, hi, are you okay? I love you. Right. It's this epic. Like I have to raise my hand. I wish people would just show up in my life when, you know, and, and, and after a while I, I, I thought, well, it is going to take you falling through the ice. If you have that attitude, because nobody knows that you're hurting. Nobody knows you have a problem. You know, people think you're capable or whatever. So kind of going back to what you're saying, if you feel epic lonely and you don't have friends like Focusing on the problem is never going to be the solution. So I often think you're in a toxic relationship, but you have a scarcity mentality, right? And scarcity mentality is like, there's light that shines on. And and if the light is shining on you, then it can't be shining on me. And an abundance mentality or a growth mindset says there's enough light for everybody. So if I let go of you, if I sacrifice this one thing that I have, Instead of thinking, then I'll be even more lonely, uh, an abundance mentality says, I have space for a new person (laughs) because all my energy and time is not going into you. Now, that takes a little bit of good, healthy space with yourself, which a lot of people can't do very well. Most people are really pain averse and they don't want to risk that alone time to be pain. That's painful, right? If you can invest a little bit of pain time, then there's a lot more on the other side of that. So, I I guess I've learned to have a bit of a pain tolerance that I'd rather let go of people and things that aren't really giving me or contributing to my health and well-being. And I'd rather be a little bit sadder or lonelier for a time period because that space is, is being prepared for somebody else, for some other friend. And so 
that's kind of how, that's kind of how I, I would hope that people, you know, I don't jump into relationships or keep relationships that are toxic because you're afraid to be alone. I like, that's like the worst. I think for me, that's the worst, that's the worst gift you give yourself. Right. It's like, you're saying I'm not enough. I can't find something else. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, no, perfectly. Like, honestly, I think I've actually been guilty of that is holding on to a relationship because it was like my best friend, my boyfriend, everything in one person. Also like (laughs) just, it just was a relationship that became too, Oh, if I didn't have him, I wasn't enough. And so, and so, yeah, sad, right? (laughs) And so I was like, I find, and I just want to say to you, like, not, not like unique, right? Like we become that, that term in therapy is called enmeshed. You become me and I become you and we're not individual people growing, but we, we like become codependent on each other. Right. Yeah. But it wasn't, I don't even know if it was codependency. It was like suffocation, (laughs) I guess. Um, Yeah. I was, I, anyway, but I just think that I know I'm not the only one that's ever been in a relationship like that. And, and it's so scary to let go. Right. Because what I have, even if it's bad, I'd rather have bad and have attention and somebody who cares about me. I'd rather even have somebody who's arguing with me than have nobody that's with me. Right. There's this, this is what I mean by that scarcity mentality. The crazy thing is you got, when you let go of something, you have to replace it, right? Like if you're quitting Diet Coke, you got to put something in that place. If you're doing this, and this is the same with relationships. So if you choose to be brave and say, I'm not going to have this person in my life, then you have to fill it with something else. And it usually is not a person, right? So this is where I go back to like making things happen in your life. What are the goals or what are the things or Arbinger, Arbinger Institute, they, they, they write the books like, um, anatomy for peace, anatomy of peace. And um, they have this term called self-betrayal. It's, it's a little, some people call this like your conscience, but this, this thing that you think of, and then you don't do it, you don't lean in. And that's called self-betrayal. Most people live with these ideas of things they know they need to do for themselves, whether it's like eat better, exercise, whatever, right? Do this thing that I've been talking about forever, get my finances in order when you cut out toxic people in your life, this, these are the things, the things that you've been self-betraying. These are the things you grab and you run with because they will, you will be a better person and a better partner and a better friend, the less self-betrayal that you have in your life. So throw yourself into the things that are, are going to better yourself because it's like a win-win, right? It takes your mind off that person, but it also it also prepares you to be not even for a partner, but for yourself, right? The less squeakiness we can have in our head that says, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. The healthier we can show up for people. So yeah, when you let go of people, you know, something that a lot of people do poorly is they just wallow. I'm not saying you can't grieve, but they just wallow and they spin their wheels and then they're sad. And then nobody's attracted to that. 
you sort of create a space where then nobody else wants to come in and be that friend or or be the next person you date because you, you kind of are Eeyore, right? You've kind of created this like, nobody likes me, everybody hates me. Um, so yeah, I just, I think you would need to replace it. But I, I really want to say to you and to others, I really want to give people permission to like let go of toxic people, even if you love them, even if they've been in your life for a long time, there's nothing more empowering than, than risking and being brave and then creating a life that feels good because people are attracted to that. They are attracted to that. Right. Right. Motion. Right. Okay. And then, well, maybe in your dating life, but maybe this would be more so asking you as a, as a therapist in your professional, what are toxic behaviors to maybe look for? Because honestly, I think when you really love someone, like if they're your friend, if they're wonderful, we want to overlook the bad in them. We really do. Especially if you're dating them and he's like, so cute, you know, <laughs> like you want to overlook it. So what are clear red flags that people could go, oh, I recognize that. Kylie said so. Yeah, yeah. So not that I'm trying to plug this because I, I, I wrote this book like 10 years ago, but I do, I have a chapter in my book called um, Bridges and Hurricanes. That's literally about what, what defines like a healthy relationship and what defines like a, a not healthy. So some of those things, it's hard, it's hard to take them outside of each other, right? This is what's healthy and this is negative. But a couple of things that are sure signs, if you're in a relationship, friendship or otherwise, and the person that you're in the relationship spends more time talking and thinking about themselves, that's a red flag. Okay. So, and it doesn't matter what it is. It can be that they're talking about all the good things they're doing or that they're talking about all the bad things they're doing. Like if they're inherently um, not trying to be part of like showing up for you or thinking of you or creating space for you to talk, if they're not listening as much as they're talking, not healthy. So that's one big red flag that a lot of people miss because they're like, I'll just be the listener. I'll just be the one who's showing up for them. Right. I'm happy to be on this side of the, the story, but that's just like totally unbalanced. Right. Um, another, another red flag that we have a hard time talking about, I think in culture in general is um, if somebody in that relationship has an addiction. Okay. They're in, if they're entrenched in an addiction. So that can be stealing, gambling. Those are, eating disorder, pornography, those are all what are called processing addictions. And then there's substance addictions, right? So that's alcohol, pills, whatever. There's kind of two, two types of addictions that people have. Uh, gaming is another really big one on the process addiction. If someone is active in an addiction, I, I often will talk about it like it's a jellyfish on their brain, right? And so no amount of you loving them and no amount, of, no amount of you forgiving them and no amount of you being like, it's okay, you have all these other good things is going to, is going to make that jellyfish go away from their brain. If they're not doing the addiction work, if they're not working with somebody, you know, really doing some evidence-based practice, people who are in active addictions cannot be in healthy relationships. I know that's really bold of me to say, but if you love somebody that's active in an addiction, the best gift you can give for them is to say, Hey, if you really care about me, you're going to go get help for yourself in the most loving way. And hopefully they want that. Hopefully you don't have to tell them. Hopefully they're close enough friends with you that if they divulge this information, they're willing to hear you say like, 
I'm ready to, I'm ready to take a pause or back up or whatever. If you're a friend, you don't have to do that, right? You can just kind of be on, be with them as they go through it. But if you're in a romantic relationship, it's really hard because it, it does not break even. So a red flag is addiction. And, and even though it's hard to have that conversation because people feel like they're judging people, um, it's okay to be really healthy with your boundaries and understand that no amount of love, no amount of care is going to help that is going to have that go away. And that has a great, great negative toxic impact on a relationship because it's all consuming, right? They have to figure out how to work that out. And that can't be you. That's their person that they're figuring that out. So that's another red flag. I would say, I'll probably just share three, but I, I would say another like red flag in just any healthy, healthy relationship is, you kind of described it, is uh, on, on, an unhealthy dependence on that other person if if you're dependent on if you find yourself or they find themselves with you right it can be either side of that dependent on the other person's emotions you're happy when they're happy you're sad when they're sad you need them to be happy or to be sad you need them to like validate you you don't have other things outside of you that are helping you to you know they always agree with you even if you know they don't, right? They have a need to be seen as somebody who's agreeable. Um, really healthy relationships, people argue, they have different opinions. They figure out how to communicate those opinions and still say like, okay, we can think differently, but be in that. So too agreeable, unwilling, like emotionally dependent, um, any version of that. It could be codependency, but it can also be this, what I call enmeshment, which isn't codependency. It just means that I'm emotionally enmeshed with you. I'm not my own independent, healthy person. And you're your own independent, healthy person. And now we're together in a relationship. Yeah. So those are kind of three big ones that I think, and those go for friendships too, as well. Right. 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 And then I wanted to jump back to the addiction really quick and ask for, for one, um, obviously like if somebody has a past addiction, like they, they used to actively have the addiction and obviously people want to look for relapses or whatever it is, or they want to be honest maybe in their dating relationship and say, Hey, look, I used to have a pornography addiction, or I used to have a huge substance addiction with marijuana or whatever it is. And, and they're trying to be transparent with you and just say like, I've come clean, but that is something that I just wanted to be honest with you about. And like, one medical term that I, I listened to, I don't know who it was, if it was a psychologist or a MD, but they were saying like, once an addict, always an addict. Like, like, yes, you can come clean, but you always have to be aware of those people. So I wanted to ask you for, for like those relationships of, of one, going about that helpfully of like being like, okay, that's okay that like you've come clean and or two like once you're committed to them or married to them if they have a relapse working through that in a relationship yeah so this i i have some ideas about this from a clinical aspect but i will also just say every relationship is super unique right and every person there are some people who are going to say i don't want to bring an addiction into my marriage and so like if somebody told me that they even if they had a past addiction i'm i'm not going to date them and 
to each their own, right? I'm a big believer, obviously, as a therapist and as a social worker, I'm a big believer that people can change and they can change in epic ways. I'm also, because of that, I also know people can change back, right? Like people, um, it's, it's not uncommon that somebody will be sober in whatever they're thinking, five, six, seven, 10 years, and some big event or something happens and then they relapse. Um, and so, you know, it really depends on how you feel in your philosophy and, and really for the most part, that person's accountability, right? If they're, if, if people slip up now and again and they're accountable and they're responsible about it and they take care of themselves and they communicate it, you're probably going to be in a healthier relationship than somebody that doesn't. Right. Um, and so that's to be a healthy partner in any, any sense of the form, you, that responsibility is on that person. It's not your job, but you also can hold healthy boundaries. And by saying like, your stuff is not my stuff. I'm here to support you. I'm here to care about you, but it's not mine to work through. Right. And, and that's okay. Some people end up even getting divorced and things because of that. And that's okay. I, I, I'm a big believer that you, when you meet friends or when you meet somebody to date, you meet them right then where they are. Right. So if they say to you like, and believe them, and I, I'm a big fan of this. When people tell you what they are, believe them. Don't don't take don't think you're gonna fix them. Don't think it's gonna be better. Don't you know? If they say I have had a past addiction and I'm two years sober, or I'm working with a therapist and I'm actively healthy right now. Yeah, I believe them. Right until they prove you otherwise, I think show up where they are. And I don't know that I would be so bold to say once an addict, always an addict but most people that have addictions genetically have been presupposed to that you know like they have addictive behaviors in their family they're not going away so if it could change from this addiction to a different addiction so somebody who's had a previous addiction if you if you want to be in a healthy relationship with them they need to have the opinion of this is probably something I'm going to work on for the rest of my life. Now work on is different for everybody, right? Some people stay in therapy. Some people go to groups. Some people just say, this is my accountability to you in this, right? So like if you have a gambling addiction, it may not go away, but then you would just say, we're going to be working on our finances together for the rest of our lives. You're going to be accountable to me and I'm going to be accountable to you. And we're going to be very transparent so that if there's any extra money missing or whatever, you know, if there's a problem. So, and that's not going to go away even if I haven't gambled for 10 years, right? Like we're just going to keep that as uh, a good guardrail. So I do believe that, you know, it's okay to be in relationships and there, there's great healthy relationships with people because people can change and an addiction robs you of your life. And if you figure out how, how to get back on track, like all the more better, right? You have more to offer to people in, in that. But like any relationship, it's important to have guide rails. It's important to have good, healthy boundaries and really good communication and kind of really know what you're getting into and don't put on rosy glasses, right? Like don't be the person who's just like, Oh, everything's going to be okay. A lot of people that have pornography addiction will say, well, if you just get married, it'll be fine. Cause we'll be having sex. And that is just, first of all, not true. And there's no evidence in that. So that's one of those rosy glasses that I've seen a lot of women and men on the other side of that do. Right. And then they realize, oh, that's not because that's not the actual pornography addiction isn't having sex doesn't doesn't fix that. And so that's what I mean by really know your stuff and really have good conversations and really be vulnerable. And if you can't have those, that tells you right there, right, that relationship isn't strong enough or healthy enough friendship wise or otherwise. Right. Okay. And then next question is people who are in denial of, you know, like you said, the really strong communication. Okay. Well then let's work through whatever it is. Like you're saying, you know, uh, 
they're they're always caught up in themselves and if you bring that up to them and they're like hey yo buddy I would like to talk about me for once if they're in denial of that or you know oftentimes some sometimes when you call somebody out on their on their where they've messed up it's very offensive to them and Mm -hmm. and they're like whoa no 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 like (laughs) and they'll be in complete denial and like same thing with addictions is if like marijuana you can smell it I don't know about you but like like I can smell if somebody has been smoking pot probably like the furthest I've been is probably half a mile off like and been able to like so people always think I can smell it because they've been smoking but like you can smell it because it comes it's in your pores yeah anyway I was like I can smell it (laughs) anyway but but it's like you can people will be in denial of things and I think that that not only is a red flag but um just saying okay goodbye or or working through things if people are in denial or yeah I'm not a big fan of ever saying okay goodbye to people I think that what that tells people is that what you believe is that they're fragile they they can't fix it or they can't you know anytime you try to solve someone's problem or you cut them out without any communication you're basically saying you can't handle it and or I can't handle you. Right. So I'm a big fan of healthy boundaries and communication. And I'm a big fan of when you ask somebody to show up authentically and you give them a space, if you're not being judgmental, but you're saying, Hey, I really want to talk about something that's kind of hard for me, but, and you, and you lay down a safe space and somebody, um, believe the information that's coming at you. So there's two ways for people to respond when they get critical feedback of any kind, right? They can be defensive and that's our natural inclination as people. We have this defense mechanism that says, and they might, some people do that and then they initially let go. They like realize, oh man, I'm being defensive. That's one way. And the other way is for the other person to also be humble and approachable and coachable and to listen and say, I care enough about you that, yeah, I do have a problem because that's scary for people. It's scary for people to admit that they have problems and it's very vulnerable. If they, if it's like you're laying down your head and the other person has a sword, if I lay down my head, you, you have the opportunity to lop it off. Right? So that's the first thing when you're having a conversation with somebody enter with seeking to understand before being understood and a lot of humility. Um, but, but then how they show up in that should tell you a lot about them, right? If they're defensive, if they don't, if they don't want to hear what you have to say, if they don't care about how their um, behaviors are impacting your life or whatever, if they try to make it your problem, that's another thing. If they try to be like, well, you're just judgy or you're just square or you're just anytime somebody that you're trying to have a conversation about issues, if they put it on you, all of that is information for you to say, basically, this person is not ready to have this conversation. They're not healthy enough. They aren't open enough. And then I would just say that, right? Hey, this didn't go down the way that I thought, whether it's this didn't go down the way after that or this or this, right? Whatever way feels the safest, that did not go down the way that I was hoping that it would. And I think I need to let you go. Or I think for me, I need to take some space or whatever it is. Um, If people aren't ready to have really hard, honest conversations about accountability, they're just not ready. And I would, I would say it's your turn to kind of like close up and say, okay, like I got my answer that I wanted and as scary and as hard as that would be, I think it's time to, now th- I, th- I feel very differently if you're in a marriage, right? Like if you're committed to somebody, I think you can still have all those healthy boundaries and, and take all that space. But 
there's some other conversations that you're going to have. And, and some, you know, you don't just stop talking to somebody or stop whatever you have to sort of all both lean in and you have to sort of do that. But, but I, yeah, I guess I just keep repeating, like believe people when they show you what they show you, right? Like, and, 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 and then mourn that rather than a lot of people will, will give more. I'll just love them more. I'll just judge them less. I'll just, but they have all these other good things. Sure. Sure. Someone's got to love people enough for them to do the work, right? If you compensate for their work and the next person compensates for their work, nobody's doing that person any service by saying, Hey, you gotta, you gotta choose yourself and you gotta be healthy and you gotta fix that for you. Right. Right. I like that. I like I it as a gift. You sort of gift people the opportunity to, figure out what they need to figure out so that you're not compensating and you're not, you're not, you know, reaping sort of the negative effects of that relationship either. Like, yeah, no, that makes sense is you just need to just do you. Cause I think at the end of the day, the only person you can control is yourself. Right. And, Amen. <laughs> and, <laughs> and quite honestly, like, the more, like you said, if the more we are relying on others, the more we're going to be let down, right? Because we don't, we can't necessarily rely on them to, to do what we want them to do. Yeah, that's the key. Do what we want them to do. We definitely in relationships and friendships need to rely on each other to compensate for each other. We definitely need to be vulnerable. Vulnerability invites vulnerability, right? Like, and, and that invites connection. So we have to be willing to like have hard conversations or be honest with people. And we have to be willing to like lean on each other, but it's, it's just, are you doing it in a healthy way or are you doing it in an unhealthy way? Right. And if you're doing it and relying on people or they're relying on you in an unhealthy way, unless you can figure out how to help put that more into a healthy perspective. And a lot of times you can go to therapy, you can do friends therapy, couples therapy, family therapy. There's, you know, you can't usually fix your own problems while you're in it. That's the whole point of like talking into somebody else is you can't see your blind spot. People get really rigid, my idea and your idea. And, and, and I call it the splat theory. I splat on you and you splat on me and we're all covered in splat, right? So it's not to say that you can't fix that relationship or work on it, but you know, healthy relationships have problems, but you work them out in a healthy way. And when you're done and you get through that, you're stronger for it. Toxic relationships, it's a perpetual problem, right? It's like a perpetual, like, oh, we're having problems or you're having problems and we, I try to make it better. And, and you feel like you can gift them or love them or spend enough time and things get better for a little while, but then it's never enough. So it's this, it's this perpetual motion of like, you're never enough. So if you're in any relationship where you're feeling perpetually, like I'm never enough, that it's probably a big red flag or an indicator that like it's a toxic relationship right and the worst kind are the ones that you're like but I love this person so much they're like this integral part of my life it's like a hurricane that's why I call it that you're in the storm and until you walk through the other side of the hurricane and then you feel how great it is to not be in it you have no idea people that let go of toxic relationships and they get through the because when you're walking out of a hurricane you still get beat up right when you leave the eye of the storm there's just like all kinds of crazy shiz happens right and so that's the thing people don't want to walk out into the storm no no wonder people stay in toxic relationships you know but if you're willing to let go and kind of walk through the storm the other 
other side of the hurricane, there's so it's like an oasis. There's so much relief and you can see things you never saw before and you can feel things. You don't feel as crazy. You don't feel like you're like as needy. You don't feel like you're like, oh, I'm never enough. You start to meet people on the outside of that hurricane that are like that see you for you and love you. And you're like, oh, there I am. You know, there's the person that I was before. So yeah, it's definitely worth worth the risk, you know, to say, I got to let you go. Okay. And then just a full circle, all the way back around to finish with yeah. is practicing that, that self-love for yourself. Uh, maybe it's not necessarily a relationship with somebody else that people are feeling like, I'm not enough. I'm not enough for that person. It's that you're not enough for yourself, that you're, you're struggling mm-hmm. with your own relationship with who you are, where you are, um, Again, like struggling with loneliness because you're single, struggling with loneliness because you want to find a friend, you don't have enough friends because you're not the popular comparison, everything, all of it. Like, what is the foundation to laying that healthy relationship and practicing that for yourself? Yeah. Oh, that's a big question. Big question, Lauren. Um, (laughs) I would say, and I can only speak from my perspective, but one of my one of the things that I often think and I often gift to people is just be gentle, like be gentle with yourself. Like people make mistakes, people have bad days. Um, and, and with that, don't fall into a victim mentality. Like we are the captains of our ships, right? We are the people who get to determine our attitude and our, and our, and the way that we interact with people. We don't always get to determine our circumstances or our relationships. So keeping that in mind that we don't control anybody but ourselves, there, there are two types of things I think that are integral to self-love. One is do the work. A lot of people don't want to do the work. They want to say, nobody loves me because I'm fat or nobody loves me because I have this mental health problem or nobody, you know, they, they can identify a list of things that they think they're less than and they don't do anything about it. So I'm not like the most popular person when I say this, but I think it's true. It's that self-betrayal, right? We have this voice that says, I should probably take care of myself a little bit better and whatever area it is for you and everybody's different. And every day and every time we deny that we have more and more shame in ourselves because you know, you should be doing something about it. Now I'm not saying you should do something about everything all the time. I'm a big believer that one big thing at a time, right? Like when I was buying my house, that was it. There wasn't healthy eating and like exercise and all these things. I put a lot of my energy just recently. I decided like it's time for me to be really healthy. And I joined a a gym called F 45 and I'm like eating to, I'm in like this challenge right now. And that's the thing that I'm doing right now. I'm not doing a million other things. I'm doing that thing. So, but I think there's security and there's some confidence building, even if you have a really bad self-esteem on saying I'm picking a thing and I'm working on it and I'm working on it until I get the results that I want. So whether that's getting out of debt or taking care of your health or showing up for your friends way more, you could just focus on that, right? I'm going to show up and I'm going to give back and I'm going to be the best friend. I haven't been a great friend in my life, right? So that's one of the keys I think is doing the work that you're saying that you're whatever the victim mentality is. If you're an introvert and you know, you need to be more extroverted saying yes more and going out more and creating opportunities. And then the other piece of self-love is 
is getting rid of thinking errors. So this is a cognitive behavior thing. We grow up and we have these ideas and we have these core beliefs, whether it's from church or religion or family or whatever, that are these negative thinking errors that just aren't true. And unless you can like poke holes in those and get rid of them, it's really hard to, to love yourself. So that's also just kind of work. You can do that in therapy or you can do that by yourself, but it's sort of recognizing the way I think affects the way I look and behave about the world. So the thing I need to change the most about myself is my thinking, right? Right. This is why I'm a proponent of people going to therapy. Even if you don't think you have a big issue, it's like they're going to therapy um, validates or will help you poke holes in your, in your thinking errors, right? If you have thinking issues about yourself or about the way you look at the world, it gets you really stuck. So if you're in a victim mentality and you feel justified in that because the world has done you wrong or whatever, that's, that's fine. People will often say to me, but like, I have a reason. I'm like, you can have every reason in the world to be a victim and that will never get you where you want to go. You're going to have to let go of that. Or at some point you're going to have to, you know, re- regardless of how you look or your circumstances, you have the opportunity to say, okay, but I'm going to do this step, this one step, or I'm going to do this one thing. Um, and, and so being gentle with yourself and then doing the work, I think is, is, is the key. And it's not easy that like what I'm saying sounds like, oh yeah, okay, we just do that. I think it's most people have a low self-esteem about themselves. Most people have a pretty negative inside voice. The world teaches you that, you know, social media teaches us that even, even all of our marketing teaches us that because if you're because all the clothes that you wear, you have to be a certain size, all the food that you eat, like everything in marketing says you're not enough. You need this, you need this, you need this. We're like in a scarcity mentality, right? So it's, it's not surprising that most of our minds and our bodies and our hearts are, are negative. And so I think we have to do our inner, we have to do our inner work and it does help kind of coming back to what we said, the better people you position around you when you're doing that work, the easier it is to be gentle and be kind to yourself. Right. So as you get rid of those toxic people in your life and you sort of surround yourself with people that are trying to be healthy and trying to be kind and trying to show up for you, it becomes a lot easier for you to just kind of relax and not worry so much about, you can just be kind of authentic and be kind to yourself. So the kind of the work, kind of what we talked about kind of all impacts each other. Right, right. I love that. That's so good. And it's like, (laughs) and then at the end of the day, when you are in your own healthy mindset, and doing the best you can for you, it doesn't matter whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're (laughs) like, whether you have good friends, or like, whether you just lost a, a, you're a friend that you've had for six years, my gosh, I'm like, End of yeah. the can't speak anymore, but, <laughs> but yeah, like just with you, right. At the end of the day, you always come home to you. Right. So I always think where should the most energy you put in you, right? Right. Right. Yeah. 110%. Um, and I will say, can I say like, that doesn't mean if you're the healthier you're getting, that doesn't mean you're not going to have really bad days. I mean, one of the things that um, I'm a big fan and try to sometimes put out my vulnerability for people because people often see me as like capable and like doing a lot of good and, and going is, is to say that that doesn't prevent you from having really epically bad days or feeling really epically lonely. But what it does is it creates the safety net. Like even on my very worst, awful, terrible, like I feel like I'm being swallowed up in like fire days. 
I have this crazy, awesome safety net of friends and family and religion and things. I'm, I'm almost so grateful for the things I can't be angry, you know, but I can, but, but, but creating a life of abundance and creating that safety net for me is the, it, it in and of itself is the thing that rescues me from that. I sit in it and I burn in it for a while because that's how we should. We should. But then when I, the week is over, the day is over, the, or a couple of days are over, like I can't help but move along in my life. And so I think as you do the work to surround yourself and have an abundance mindset, and as you like sort of accomplish your goals that you're setting out for your life, as you get rid of like self-betrayal, the things we talked about, then when you do have really bad days, like you've built this sort of, like I talked about, you've built this belonging place that will wait for you. You know, we're going to wait for you. We have patience for you. You can have your really bad days and you can not be, it can be okay that you're not okay because like, we know you're going to come out of that and, and we're good. Right. 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 Okay. Just one last time. Your name of your book is go do it. Is that right? Make it happen. Make it happen. I am so sorry. I like I said. My name Kylie Shields. Make it happen or uh, LDS book Kylie Shields. There's a, it's pretty. Oh, easy. I even wrote it down. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Make yeah. it happen is the name of Kylie's book. Um, thank you everyone for tuning in to today's episode. As always, life is a journey. Whether you're single, married, divorced, whatever it is. Learn to enjoy it. Thanks, Kylie. Thank you, Lauren.